Hello, and welcome to Peter Pan Man Dan, a podcast about fatherhood. I'm Dan, a screenwriter and first-time father, and these are my adventures. This episode is called Dad Talk, and is about me finding someone to talk to about all this crazy baby stuff. Want to grab a beer? That's what I used to text my friend Giles when I was an alcoholic and needed someone to talk to. Giles was my go-to drinking buddy. He's British, so he knows a thing or two about knocking back a couple of proverbial pints. Aside from our love of beer, we had a lot in common, right down to our dark outlook on life and demented sense of humor. He was also pursuing a risky career in the entertainment industry as a writer-producer. He went to USC for film school when I did. He had a dead parent, his mom. He was painfully single and also trying to mend a broken heart. And he lived close by, which is a massive deal when you reside in a sprawling urban shitshow like Los Angeles. Giles was a full package, like if a dream friend had been manufactured in a factory just for me. Yeah, sure, would love to grab a drinky drinky, he'd almost always text back. Giles and I would find a spot, park ourselves there for an evening, then pour our hearts out to one another while the bartender poured us IPAs. We'd talk about anything bothering us, from the ups and downs of a risky career path, to dating horror stories, to ideas we had for TV shows or movies, all while making an obscene amount of dead parent jokes. I bet my dad's banging your mom in heaven, I'd say. At least giving him a handy, he'd joke. These hangs became more than just grabbing a beer and blowing off steam. They evolved into a therapy session for both of us. Giles and I would take turns playing shrink while the other played patient. Sure, we were in a crowded bar full of other degenerates. And sure, we were sitting on a stool instead of lying on a couch in a diploma-covered office. But the concept was the same. We were each other's way of venting, getting shit off our chests bitching and moaning about the world, sorting through the past while dreaming about the future. Giles and I started seeing each other with such frequency that it was as if we were dating. We provided each other with a lot of the things you'd get from a romantic relationship without the hassle of having sex with each other. At the end of the night, we'd look at our tab and joke that it was all cheaper than therapy. We'd leave feeling like we were slightly closer to having this whole quote, life thing figured out. Life is easy and we're going to live forever, I'd say. Unlike your dad and my mom, Giles would joke. When I started coming home from the bar and drinking by myself into the wee hours of the morning, it became apparent I had a problem with alcohol. I mean, there were other signs, some of which I've already pointed out. But this was a major one. I clearly didn't possess the kill switch necessary to cut myself off once the drink started flowing. If I drank three beers with Giles, I'd drink 15 more when I got home, and maybe a Jack and Coke or three to boot. I'd pass out somewhere in my apartment, then wake up with my coffee table covered in empties. I'd then feel like shit for the next couple of days. I'd feel guilty and angry that I had let my night slip away, and that alcohol had conquered me once again. But the liver damage I was inflicting upon myself felt worth it because I was able to vent to Giles. Having someone to talk to about life is incredibly important, obviously. 
It was a reset button, a way to unclog the emotional pores so shit didn't build up. Or so it didn't get repressed, then manifest into something worse down the road, like cancer, or a weird hobby like ocean kayaking. When I gave up drinking, Giles and I didn't have as many heart-to-hearts. I loved that I wasn't hungover anymore. I loved that I lost some weight. I loved that I felt healthier. I loved that I had a clearer head. I loved that I wasn't passing out in random places in my apartment. I loved that my anxiety about doing or saying stupid shit decreased. But I hated that I lost these therapy sessions with Giles. Shortly after I locked into a serious relationship with Meredith, Giles moved across town. He then started his own relationship with an awesome woman. We consequently saw each other even less. It was almost as if Giles and I had broken up. Sure, I started to get some of those things I was getting from him from Meredith, plus sex. But I still miss those booze-fueled emotional dumps. I suppose one massive bummer about adulthood is you sort of age out of doing certain things. You move on to the next phase, get sucked down one of life's wormholes, grow apart. Giles and I obviously remained great pals, and we will be forever, especially since our parents are fucking in heaven. He was a groomsman at my wedding, for example. We pivoted from slamming drinks to playing tennis, catching a movie, or grabbing a bite. But it's not the same as when we were each other's drunk Dr. Melfi, back when life was simpler and more complex all at once. As Meredith and I continued our journey out of Never Never Land and through baby hell, I felt a burning desire I hadn't felt in years. I wanted to send Giles a wanna-grab-a-beer text. I wanted to sit down in some dank bar with a weird funk and just drink the night away like the good old days. It was only the third time since quitting drinking that I sort of craved alcohol. The first time was at my wedding when I felt like everyone was having more fun than me. And the second was to celebrate Biden's win over Trump in the 2020 presidential election. So my desire to get sloppy drunk was rare. In fact, I had developed an almost visceral negative reaction to even the thought of booze. After all, I knew how uncomfortable and painful hangovers had become. It finally felt like poison instead of medicine to cure my sadness. But I was craving it, especially during Theo's witching hour fussiness or middle of the night crying. When he'd scream at me, I often thought, man, it would sure be nice to grab a beer with Giles. But getting shit-faced would have been a terrible decision. Watching Theo was hard enough without relapsing. I couldn't even begin to imagine what it would have been like while hungover. And the overwhelming guilt I'd feel for flushing five and a half years of sobriety down the toilet would have weighed me down. Plus, Meredith would have probably killed me. Things were already stressful enough without turning our condo into a crime scene. I thought about it. I soon realized that more than alcohol, I was missing chatting with a pal about all the monumental changes I was experiencing. This transition from being a Peter Pan man, only focused on writing screenplays, watching movies, jogging, and maple, to helping keep a human baby boy alive was intense. The whole parenting thing, in general, was a mindfuck. Sure, friends and family would reach out via text to check in. Or they might love an Instagram post featuring Theo. 
or write congratulations or he's so adorable or you're an amazing father and Theo is lucky you're willing to sacrifice so much to make sure he has such a great life. You're for sure the world's greatest dad. Okay, so I made up that last one. Some pals might even call or organize a FaceTime or Zoom. But it was hard to find the time to have a meaningful conversation while juggling the baby in the background. In fact, Theo would get pissed any time we so much as looked at our iPhones. And the train of potential in-person well-wishers was derailed by the whole COVID mess. People were cautious again since the Delta variant had reared its ugly head. And since we had contracted it, we were treated like we were the monkey in outbreak. My immunocompromised mom was even weary about visiting again unless we produced negative COVID tests. Stupid pandemic, I'm so sick of it, I said. I know, me too. When is this shit going to end, Meredith said. Only like 20 more years to go, I said, not sure if I was joking or not. I was finding that, in addition to redefining your relationship with your spouse, a baby also recalibrates your relationship with certain friends. Because I was single for so long and was on a path towards no children before Meredith came along, I had collected a lot of like-minded pals in my childless boat. And because a career in screenwriting is so uncertain... A lot of my, quote, Hollywood pals had delayed starting a family. Some had even decided to avoid it entirely. Their projects were their babies. Shit, I had one friend who was so scared a kid would wreck his Hollywood dreams that he got a vasectomy in his early 20s. Childless friends can't relate to the existential crisis you're having while adjusting to parenthood. And the pals with kids are too busy, too worn down by their own march through hell, that they can't provide you with much more than the occasional check-in text. I mean, they might remind you that it gets easier, but it's ultimately your battle to fight. All these factors led to a lack of human interaction for Meredith and me. Eventually, Meredith found a mommy and me group at a place called the Pump Station. It was every Friday. From what Meredith would tell me, it sounded like it was more of a support group for the moms than it was a bonding experience for mother and baby. All the women just bitch about how shitty their husbands are. Makes me feel better about you, explained Meredith after I picked her and Theo up from class one Friday. Aw, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me, I joked. See, I know I suck, but it could be worse, I added with a slight smirk. I was actually proud I was earning higher marks than some other worthless dads. But I still didn't have anyone to vent to. Poor, lonely Dan, just marching through hell without anyone but his wife and satanic baby. Er, Angel. I meant Angel. I'm so sorry, Theo. That all changed one night when I was out with Maple for a sit and shit. Before Theo, I'd typically watch a movie, then take Maple outside for her last potty of the night around 11.30. I'd always make sure she both peed and pooped a combination that we had started jokingly calling an A+. That way, Maple wouldn't need to go during the night. The Santa Monica streets were generally empty at this hour. It was as if Maple and I had the whole world to ourselves. I'd look up in the endless sky full of possibilities. I'd squint to see a few stars bright enough to pierce through the murky brown layer of the Los Angeles pollution. I'd think about my day, what I had accomplished, what I had left for tomorrow. And Maple would sniff around, hunting for the perfect spot to do her A+. It was a meditative moment for both of us. But since I was sleeping so much less thanks to Theo's devilish ass, I had to start getting to bed closer to 
This meant that I took Maple out around 8.30. And what we discovered was that the usually silent streets of Santa Monica were now bustling with dogs marking their territory, eating grass, and doing their very own A-pluses. It was almost as if we had accidentally discovered some doggy version of a 1920s speakeasy. I didn't know any of the owners' names, just their dogs. There was Penny, a chihuahua mix who loved maple. There was Reggie, an adorable pug who rivaled maple in softness. There was Gatsby, a frisky Pomeranian whose owner was a health nut and didn't believe in the vaccine. Then there was Bella, a hyper poodle mix whose owner would let her off leash so she could literally run circles around everyone else. Maple loved this. She'd prance outside and get her perfect button nose as close to another dog's anus as possible. She'd inhale like she was at a wine tasting in Napa. And, while she would, I started chatting with the other dog owners. I recognized a lot of them from the neighborhood. During the day, we'd make small talk about our dogs. What's his or her name? How old? What breed? Is it a rescue? That sort of trite shit. But I was finding that with the sun in hiding and the moon hanging like a dim nightlight in the sky, this after-hours crowd would open up more about personal matters. It was almost like we were drunks in the back of a Vegas cab. How are you doing? They'd ask. Oh, I'm in infant hell right now, so not great, I'd bluntly say. Man, yeah, your life changes when you have kids, the one with kids would say. These chats weren't much, but when you're as thirsty for social interaction as I was, you'll take anything you can get. One night, as I was chatting with a fellow late-night pooper, I looked over and saw my neighbor Sheila. Sheila might be the friendliest person on our block. She's a type who calls everyone, quote, buddy, or, quote, my friend. So you're convinced that you're both her buddy and her friend. She's a bundle of upbeat, optimistic energy. A cup of coffee in human form. We had known her and her wife for a few years now. They had a dog and lived only two buildings down from our condo complex. So we had become friends when we got Maple. Sheila ran a luxury addiction and mental health treatment center in Malibu. So she was good at listening to other people complain about their problems and messy lives. Because of her warm demeanor and superior listening skills, I always felt comfortable around her. Even before Theo, I would confide in her about personal matters. I had told her that I had struggled with alcohol and quit drinking a few years earlier. You know, the sort of light conversations one has with a near stranger while your dog shits. She and her wife had had their second child five months before Theo was born. So, in addition to being a sobriety expert, she was also a veteran of baby hell. Her wife had birthed her children. So Sheila was relegated to more of the traditional dad duties, even though gender is a construct and normative roles are changing every day. So she was in a similar position as me, that of support while her wife did the nitty-gritty things. I'd see her out kicking the soccer ball with their older daughter while her wife carried the other and the baby Bjorn, for example. She was also apparently stuck with taking their dog, Nori, out for her final potty of the night. I wasn't used to seeing Sheila during the nighttime potties, so it was a nice surprise. I pushed past all the other dog owners and dragged Maple over to her. Hey, I excitedly said, trying to mask my desperation for meaningful human interaction. I probably reeked of it. Hey, buddy, you're out here early, said Sheila. 
Coming out earlier because I need to go to bed on account of Theo being a hell demon at night. Ha! I hear ya. We're sleep training right now. So, it's a bitch for us too, she said. Oh man, yeah, it all sort of sucks, doesn't it? I said. Yeah, but it's also great. Children are amazing, she said, injecting some of her positivity into the conversation. Oh yeah, 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 it's great. He's a miracle, of course, I said. I suppose all parents have to add the disclaimer that kids are great. We don't want to appear like lunatics in need of child protective services. How you holding up? She asked. Oh man, we're surviving, I said. That's all you can do in the first few months. Just survive. It's the longest, shortest time. Feels like it will last forever, even though it's only a few months. But try to cherish it. They say the days go slow, but the years go fast, she said. Yeah, feels that way, I said. But it's all hard, and some of it does suck. Just know that the suck is really front-loaded, she said. Yeah, I had a friend describe it as a poorly designed video game where the first level is the hardest, but then it gets easier. So, we're fighting Bowser right now, I said. Ha, yeah, so true, she said. I know everyone says this, but it really does get easier. And it's weird. You just sort of black out during the first few months. Like, I can't even remember what we went through. And we did it only a few months ago. Seems like it's our brain's response to trauma, I said. Totally, she said, a word she used often to exude her chill SoCal vibe. Well, I've got to get back into the shit show. I need sleep too. I hear ya, I said as I plucked maple shit off the ground with a bag and headed back into hell. Over the next couple of weeks, Sheila and I would cross paths around the same time just about every night. Anytime I'd see her out, I'd beeline over to her, often ending chats with the other dog-oating crew mid-sentence. And as we conversed, we started opening up more and more about the hardships of parenting. Our conversation started becoming longer and longer. I didn't care it was eating into my sleep time. I needed these chats. We'd talk about what little shits babies can be. Oh yeah, they're little monsters, said Sheila. Yeah, they don't give a fuck about you. In the meantime, you have to give them everything you've got. Egomaniacs, I said. Totally, she said. We'd also complain about our wives. Oh man, yeah, at night I just shut up and take it. That's all you can do. No sense fighting back. I need to get better at that and not take things so personally, I admitted. They're doing so much more than we are, so you just gotta say, Okay, you're right. I'm just here to support you, Sheila advised. Yep, gotta try to not yell at them. Shit is hard enough, I said. Totally, she said. I started telling her anything I found slightly funny that had happened to us over the last couple of months. We were both so tired, so delirious from all the childcare stuff, that we'd start laughing uncontrollably, almost to the brink of tears. Theo peed right in my face at three in the morning. I just took a deep breath and kept changing him. Didn't even shower after, I said. Yep, that happens. You learn to just have no dignity. He, poop, drool. I've been covered in it all, she said. Theo hates his car seat, so we had to take him out in Maple's stroller, I recounted. Oh no, I bet Maple was pissed, she said. 
She slumped into a doggy depression. I had to hand feed her while also feeding Theo a bottle, I said. That's amazing. I want to be Maple so bad, she joked. I talked to her about how awful Meredith and I felt when we told Theo to shut the fuck up. Buddy, I've told my kids to shut the fuck up so many times. Don't worry about that, comforted Sheila. That is incredibly nice to know, as weird as that sounds, I said. I think every parent has. I mean, I know one lady who said she straight up slapped her baby when he wouldn't stop crying, she said. Wow, slapped him? I said. Yeah, she said she didn't know what happened, just instinctively slapped him, she said. I mean, that's terrible. But also, there's nothing more rage-inducing than someone crying in your face. So, I hate to admit that I can relate, I said. Totally, she said. Our chats were admittedly mostly for me. Sheila had already been through baby hell twice. There was no piece of parenting wisdom I could impart on her that she didn't already know. But I still tried to preach. I was suffering from that spotlighting effect that inflicts new parents. I was acting like Meredith and I were the first people on earth to ever become parents, even though literally billions of others have. So, chatting with Sheila was a nice reminder that so many others had been through something almost identical to what we were going through. You don't know if what you're experiencing or feeling is normal, especially when it's your first baby. It's nice to have some confirmation that it is. If all these other people in the world can survive this shit, then so can we, I thought. And Sheila was wise. Her job was literally to try to build people up so they were strong enough to fight against addiction. That's no easy task, as I learned through my battle with alcohol. Once a substance takes over someone's brain, it's incredibly hard to get them back to who they were before. So, Sheila would drop tidbits of advice, like I was a patient at one of her rehab facilities. One night, I was telling her about how I couldn't watch as many movies as I used to. I'm sure I sounded like a piece of shit, first world problem having wine bag. My friend, you just have to accept what is. Give in to the greater force. Accept that things are different. The more you fight it, the harder it is, she said, sounding more like a Zen master preaching from a Himalayan monastery than a neighbor picking up dog shit in Santa Monica. I had acknowledged early on that I needed to stop the tug of war with my old life and accept my new one. But I was admittedly still struggling with the application of this principle. I was still comparing what was to what is. So hearing this succinctly articulated by Sheila really drove the point home. Wow, you're right. I just have to submit, I said. Yeah, it's so much easier if you just do, buddy. Trust me. Accept what is, she repeated. Maple and Nori would just sit off to the side and let us vent to each other while we hid from our families. Both dogs probably sensed that we needed a break from hell. Take your time, buddy. You're my main supplier of treats and ear rubs. Last thing I need is for you to have a nervous breakdown, Maple implied. So what was supposed to be Maple's last sittin' shit of the day turned into my own little daddy and me support group meeting. It gave me a chance to bare my soul and dump all that mounting frustration out of my system like it was a giant, metaphorical A-plus of my own. 
After my support group meeting with Sheila, I bring Maple back in and give her a treat for doing such an amazing and perfect A+. I'd rub her ears while reminding her that I loved her and cherished all of our time together. Then I get into bed feeling better, like we could make it through baby hell. Brighter, happier days were ahead of us. As I climbed into bed one night, it dawned on me. I hadn't felt the urge to send a wanna-grab-a-beer text to Giles for the last couple of weeks. I mean, it would have been great to see Giles, and it would have been therapeutic to sit down and drink some beers while unloading baby frustrations on him. But I didn't need to. I had a new therapy partner. I had Sheila. The whole situation felt very serendipitous. Here I was craving booze for the first time in over five years, and who should show up but a literal addiction and rehabilitation specialist who happened to also be a new parent. Crazy stuff. I'm not a believer in God, but it felt like divine intervention. Or maybe it was my own dad looking after me. I giggled to myself at the absurdity of all this as I got cozy in bed next to Meredith and Maple. What's so funny? Meredith groggily asked. Oh, nothing, I said, not wanting to get into all of it. Did Maple do an A+, Meredith asked. Yep, A+, a real honor student when it comes to pooping and peeing, I said. What took you so long out there, she asked. Oh, Maple and I were just working through some shit, I said. Oh, she said. Theo then started to cry, doing what he did best. That's a hungry cry, Meredith said, the Theo expert. I got him, I said. You sure, she said. Yep, I can handle it, I said. I tossed off the covers, plucked him out of his bassinet, kissed his cheek, and made him a bottle of formula. I'd usually be pissed about having to care for Theo right as I was about to slip into slumberland. But as he sucked down his bottle, I thought of a piece of advice Sheila had given me. Accept what is, I mumbled to myself and smiled. This has been Peter Pan Man Dan, a Mangano Movies and Media podcast. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of Peter Pan Man Dan, I treat myself to a new toy. Talk to you then.